Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. I have in the studio today, Sarah Cooper, the publisher and founder of Cubana Books. Sarah Cooper has brought Cuban women writers to the attention of the English-speaking world through Cubana Books. She's a professor at Cal State University in Chico. Sarah Cooper is also a remarkable reader of the work she publishes, reflecting a deep understanding and appreciation of the Cuban women writers' work. Welcome, Sarah Cooper. Nina, I'm so delighted to be here. I'm going to read a couple of poems from Always Rebellious. Cimarroneando is the uh, title in Spanish. This is poetry by Georgina Herrera. This one is called First Time Before the Mirror. And it has an epigraph that says, Staring at a thousand years old terracotta head excavated at Ife. Can anyone say... This is not my face, I see. It is not I who am revealed before the clearest mirror? Or am I born again? This one at whom I stare is me. A thousand years ago or more, I reclaim that right. My hand wanders from that face to mine, which is only one and belongs to both. It ascends, it touches our purest chin, our full lips. Yes, with so much fullness, a single kiss from her is enough to ask for the blessing of the wind, the earth, the fire, and the mist. Now my hands touch our nose. From side to side, they brush both faces. That nose, my God, and the prairie for me alone. The one they call universe, through which I wander freely, catches sense. The scent of fire, of storm, of soil and water as one. The scent of love, of endless life, comes through it, fully nourishing my blood. At last, my hand reaches the top of both faces. Our cheeks, our forehead, it descends just slightly to our eyes, at which I stare and that see me. Staggering eyes, in which sadness fades and stokes its fire. I am me, mirror or reborn. I am. This poem is called Second Time Before a Mirror. It was written many years later, and the epigraph says, Today it is my body after some years. And the poem goes like this. Naked, a bit of frost closes the pores of my skin. I look for something to protect it. Swiftly, I pass before the mirror like light itself in such a short time that it could not be measured. But the portrait 
of what I am remains fixed between my eyes. It scares me. Then later, I accept myself. Intact in my body remains a time of distant splendor. Where there was glory, nothing will be defeated. And thus, my hands reconcile with what they feel. When grateful, I touch myself. I recognize in my wide, shaky belly the sight of all the miracles of love. Always love, sending, receiving codes solely for me. Back then was my belly ardent celestial matter. Wax, mud, diluted marble, and fiery water molding planets. Over it, mouths blew like winds, and there was a swirl dust, trembling petals with no destiny. And my breasts, as they are now, calm, almost humble, with no role. My hard-working breasts from long ago carrying that white honey of nourishment like music when tensed like chords. Breasts like honeycomb for those helpless craving little mouths. Breasts like bees stinging on the inescapable fatal flight. Breasts, belly, body with no face, body. Cut off like this, it is a landscape, crepuscular, nocturnal. At dawn, always a landscape that goes and returns, that ends and begins where the obstinate one has searched for shelter, the one who was then a beating drum, calling itself to wars it invented. Yes, the heart that now demands peace. You just heard Sarah Cooper, editor-in-chief of Cubana Books, reading from the work of Jorgina Herrera. You've also brought us the work of Uva de Aragón, a writer who's born in Havana and moved to Miami and has written a novel called The Memory of Silence. What can you tell us about her and what will you read us? Uva de Aragón is a brilliant scholar. She was one of the co-founders of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. She is a member of the old guard of Cuban exiles. And as such, she came over very, very young and started off with a typical, much more conservative outlook. Her family was of the upper class and they moved well, a very good part of them moved to the United States. She lived in various places in the United States, but then settled in Miami and at some point began to write creatively as well as scholarly. She started thinking at some point about family and about how families had been so torn apart by the revolution and what happens to families. And she started becoming more interested in reconciliation and in finding those connections with family rather than maintaining the distance and maintaining the embargo. And 
she started going back to Cuba. And when she started being more in contact with friends and family and colleagues in Cuba, she started wondering what life would have been like if she had stayed. And so that's how the idea of this novel, The Memory of Silence, came up. She decided she would write about two sisters, one who left, like she left, and one who stayed. Now, she does not have a sister who stayed. She has sisters who did leave. So as a scholar, she did years of research in archives and getting oral testimonies of people in Cuba to find out really what it was like to live in the first 40 years of the revolution. So the premise of this novel is that two sisters haven't seen each other for 40 years and they are finally going to see each other again. They both have kept journals and they want to share those journals with each other. And what I'm going to read to you is one excerpt from each of their journals telling what their own lives were like on either side of that insurmountable 90 miles. The first fragment I'm going to read is from the journal of Menchu. And she's the one who stayed in Cuba and married a revolutionary fighter. We get up at 4.30 in the morning in order to be in the cane fields by dawn. You have to put on pants, thick boots, long-sleeved shirts, and a hat. Even with all that, the cane leaves still somehow get inside your clothing and scratch up your skin. The heat's unbearable. You never stop sweating. We put a jug aside in the shade of the unending foliage, and the cool water quenches our thirst for a moment. Before noon, when the sun is directly overhead and at its hottest, they take us to a shelter. There they give us something to eat, and then we return to the cane fields two hours later. The cane stalks grow tall in an orderly and unswerving line. They extend as far as you can see, slipping over the horizon without end. It's like an infinite ocean, a sea of cane fields. Sometimes, when we're really tired, we sit down and chew on a piece of cane. They say that it's terrible for your teeth, but it's sweet and delicious, and it gives us a shot of energy right away. As night falls, we head back to camp completely exhausted. Despite being dead tired, there are times I just can't fall asleep. Lazaro is in Oriente. Pedritin is in Camaway. It's been months since I've seen them. Papa just retired from his position at the Ministry of Construction, and he and Mama are in Havana, standing in line and taking care of Tanya and Enerstico. And meanwhile, I'm here, surrounded by these women who are my comrades, with whom I share a bond of daily living. And yet at the same time, it sometimes seems that we have nothing in common at all. Still, when I see everyone else so excited and dedicated to the work, I can't help but feel the same. If this really were the turning point, and if only we were truly building a new and better Cuba for our kids, I don't know why, when I'm far away from Lazaro, I start to have my doubts. I miss you so much, Lauri. We almost never write anymore. I can't imagine what your life must be like. Sometimes it seems like it was all just a dream. 
that our entire childhood of beaches and outings, that those Sunday afternoons when we would play Red Rover and hide and seek and freeze tag and all types of games, that those nights listening to baseball on the radio, that those classrooms where we learned French and we cried while reciting Marti's poetry, Oh, Pilar, with your pale and rolling hoop and little pink shoes, that those nights when we would dance out on the terrace to the rhythm of the cha-cha-cha and the record player, when Minoso bats the ball, that our entire world, so full of illusions, never really existed, and that the only true reality is this one, this interminable cane harvest that Cuba has become, which sometimes I love and sometimes I hate, and which stings me in the very core of my soul just like the sharp blades of the sugar cane that cut into my skin. And now I'm going to read you a little fragment from Lowry's journal. We bought a very comfortable house in Westchester, a middle-class area of town where a lot of Cubans lived. We put the kids in private school. Bobby got his license to sell insurance, and I got a job with the school system. My father-in-law was already close to retirement, but he was bent on getting back into law, and he did just that. The day he passed the bar exam, we had a few friends over to celebrate. Even Johnny, his wife Kathy, and their newborn came from Georgia. We were so happy because we hadn't seen them since they had gotten married two years ago, and we were dying to see the baby. When everybody finally left, Roberto came up to me and said, You know, this diploma really belongs to you too. Oh, Roberto, please. No, really, mijita, you've always believed in me. You helped me to learn English, and you've been my inspiration. You're like one of those little ants, always working, studying, making sure your kids got the education they needed. I love you, Laudi, and admire you very much. And then he gave me one of his typical pats on the back. A few months later, he insisted on moving out, and there weren't any arguments to the contrary. I'm just moving a few blocks away, and besides, if you ever need me. And in fact, even then, he still kept on being like a father to me and was always the best grandfather ever to my kids. The first few years were great. Robertico, well, in Miami, he didn't want anybody calling him Bobby anymore, seeing me back to his old self. He wasn't so bitter. We would go out with couples our own age. We went to Europe twice and once to Mexico. Our relationship got better. We only thought about Cuba. There was one instance in particular when I really lost my cool. One of their old friends went back to Cuba in 78 to participate in negotiations with Castro. And even though he ultimately left the negotiations early and came back and made some very dignified statements, they still kicked him out of the brigade. But to get you guys out of Cuba, they had to negotiate with the authorities. So why do you want to punish him for doing the same things for other prisoners? Robertico got so mad at me that the vein in his neck looked like it was going to explode. For me, going back to Miami was like a reunion with Cuba itself. The flamboyant trees, the coffee, the blazing sun, the guayaba pastries, the ocean, pineapple juice, the hub. Biscuits, tamales, the red and white impatiens, green plantains, rocking chairs on the porch, mame drinks, 
The Caladiums are tasty snacks of ham, cheese, pork, and pickles on a cracker. The architecture, the sweet taste of materva, the ocean. Once again, the ocean. Medianoches and other sandwiches, Spanish, avocados, the music, waitresses who would ask you, ¿Qué más quieres, mi amor? What else can I get you, dear? Sugarcane juice, the heat, yucca trees, palm trees, dishes like fried brains, the ocean, mangoes, always the ocean, and the island. So close, and yet at the same time, always so far away, and the exiles. Those individuals who are so much a part of me, and yet the very ones who also really rub me the wrong way. Always fixated on just one theme. Always talking, shouting, jumping up and down. Always plotting to overthrow Castro day and night. The exiles who at midday relax at the cafes with their suitcases packed full of memories. Packed and ready to return to paradise. Even though they, or is it we, aren't sure if that particular paradise is a memory or a dream. Beautiful writing and beautiful reading, Sarah. How you caught her uncle. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really have to give it to Uva de Aragon. She's excellent at giving each character their own intense flavor. Very individual. And what a contrast between the two, the lady in Westchester <laughs> with her children in private school and the woman sweating it out in the cane fields. Exactly. Yet both very focused on family. And it's very much a family saga and a book about family triumphing and love overcoming difficulties. Can you tell us what drove you to begin Cubana Books? I'm also a professor of Spanish, and I, like many of my colleagues throughout the United States, want to include literature from Cuba, but it's just been so difficult to get it here because of the embargo. And we're fundamentally opposed to just making photocopies and authors not getting any sort of acknowledgement or recompense. So truly, we started this as a way to get excellent literature by Cuban women available here in the United States. And when did you start the project? Back in 2010. And how many books have you published since then? As of 2014... We've published eight titles. That's remarkable. That's wonderful. And how do you recruit your translators? Yes, this is a, a very important question because, first of all, the books are bilingual editions. We need them available here both in Spanish and, of course, in English. And we have a very unique model at Cubana Books. It's a very collaborative model. And so... The translators are going to always work very closely with the authors. Some of our authors already had cultivated and nourished a long-standing relationship with a translator whom they brought to the project. Well, this has been really a remarkable project and to have produced so many books in so short a time and of such high quality. How can people get these books? People can get these books often at their local bookstores. 
you can look on Indie Bound online to find out which individual bookstores have them. You can also find them on the Cubana Books website at csuchico.edu backslash Cubana Books. That's, of course, affiliated with the university where I'm a professor, California State University, Chico. And then you can use the normal methods going online to Amazon, if you want, or Barnes & Noble. And have you got support from the university for this project? The university has been very, very generous, giving us space on the server, giving me time to work on the project, often bringing authors to come and speak at the university, and even doing things like paying for some of the mailings. Well, that's wonderful. And how has the impact of the news of the improving relationship between the United States and Cuba affected you? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) We are seeing already that travel to Cuba is much easier. It's already legal for those of us who go professionally as investigators, researchers, but it's getting much simpler and it's getting a little bit simpler to bring authors here to the United States. And um, I'm also really looking forward to the advances that are being made now as we speak in communications because Cuba really needs more infrastructure to support the very flourishing and growing use of Internet and cell phones there in Cuba. And that's making things a lot easier. Well, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure speaking with Sarah Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of Cubana Books. The following poems are written and read by me, Nina Serrano. Today I'm going to be reading you some poems that I wrote in Cuba, all in different decades. These next poems were written in the 1980s. Along the Malecon. The Malecon is the seawall in Havana. The air so moist and heavy, I float on it. The ocean rushes by me along the seawall. I am in the tropics again. I give myself up to the heat. My body is for moving, walking along Havana streets, fathoming the nautical caves under the sidewalk of this ground once submerged. I hear the memories of mermaids below singing in my head, of how the land rose and urban life grew, how the royal palms sunk roots, growing a new leaf at each new moon, dancing with the tide. The waves break, splash, and spray as the sun rises higher in golden stripes to announce this new day. Tropical City Morning, Havana I walk through the sunless dark of early morning. The light is as our evening stroll was. But my body moves with morning hopes in search of coffee. School children still in bed, their uniforms waiting for another day. Buses pass, already all the seats are filled. Silent, standing passengers sway on leather straps. It is uncommonly quiet as underwater motion. People pass, all powdery and freshly bathed, swimming through warm, dusky air and sea breeze lost in fragments of dreams or scheduling the future 
before sunrise. There is a hole in Havana for poet Pablo Armando Fernandez. There's a hole in Havana. Nothing can fill it. Pablo Armando is out of town. Where is the magician who transforms it all, interprets signs and symbols as we rock on the veranda? Words rock, worlds rock, rock, rock in the rocking chairs as we talk, my mind clouds part, changing the curve of my confusion to a straight line between magic and reality. I am at peace. I am happy as the rocking words of the magician flow. But now he's gone. The plants by the veranda wait for him. They don't want to fall into the hole of his absence. They open and close, counting the days. The perfumed air holds his place for him. The pounding of the ocean on the seawall whispers his phrases, disappearing in the foam before I can translate them. There is a hole in Havana. I leave my message there. So he will know I was here when he was not. Havana, 2002. In August, you melt, sweat flowing, and all your defenses float away. You are open. Songs spring from your soul to your mouth. Air harmonizes with memories. Buildings peel, exposing layers of time and culture. Walking hot, humid streets, you swim in your shoes, clutching dollars that fly away from you to deal with pesos in mortal combat, corrupting, interrupting the splashing Caribbean, baking in vaporous heat, preparing to kiss the moon. This poem was written in 2005. Musical money. Corre, corre, rush, rush. Cubans even speeded up their music when capitalism crept back into the economy. Walked in with foreign investments paved by the dollar economy, rocketing Cubans with access to dollars, entrance into the consumer world, and those with only salaried pesos to do without. Corre, corre, rush, rush. And in our mighty capital of capitalism, the corre, corre, rush, rush reaches its crescendo in very slow traffic jams. In longer work weeks with more things to buy, less to buy with. Corre, corre, rush, rush. Capitalism hurries, converting time into money, driving us to sink into Mother Earth from weighted landfills of obsolete stuff, spoiling water and air in a corre, corre, rush, rush. Corre, corre, rush, rush. I have some exciting news to share with listeners to Poet to Poet here on KPFA. I have just finished my first novel, Nicaragua Way. Yes, at age 81, to be published this winter of 2016 by Estuary Press. Am I excited? Oh yes. 
If you'd like to stay informed or be invited to the book party, please let me know by going to my website, ninaserrano.com. Send me your email addresses. Come and celebrate with me and hear excerpts from Nicaragua Way. Thank you. This has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. a statement from a local station board candidate. The views expressed are not those of KPFA management or staff. My name is Brian Oktunis, and I'm a candidate for the KPFA local station board. I'm an English teacher at Newark Memorial High School and a community activist. KPFA not only benefits me personally, but it also benefits my students as I pass on what I learn. I lived in the Bay Area for 10 years before learning that KPFA even existed. We need to explore ways to take the station to places where it's not just visible to the choir of local listeners. KPFA needs to have a stronger presence at local events and on the Internet. As a listener and educator, I've made hundreds of teens aware of the power of KPFA and social issues it brings to light, all without the benefit of paid advertisements. As a board member, I hope to do the same for thousands. Remember to vote for Brian Okchunas for KPFA board member. For more information, go to elections.pacifica.org. 